Devin, I've got a question for you. Yeah, what's that, Tyler? Have you ever gone above and beyond kind of the regular call of duty in doing clinical ethics? And what I mean by that, have you ever have taken it upon yourself to do something extra or out of the ordinary that you thought was important for the patient? Yeah, one thing comes to mind, although I guess the caveat is I think I did this actually as a chaplain and not as a clinical ethicist, although I think it was either way, it was sort of out of the ordinary. Um, I remember once I had a patient who she was referred to me because she wasn't talking to anybody on the healthcare team or the chaplain's office because they were all men and they had suspected that she was in the hospital for an abusive situation. And so she was very withdrawn and wouldn't talk to any of the male staff in the hospital. And um, they asked if I would go and talk to her. Um, and I went and talked to her and she was she was still quite withdrawn though she talked to me a bit. And she said that one of her concerns was that her nail polish was chipping and that it was really distracting to her. And so I offered to paint her nails. Wow. And so the next day I, I came in and I brought some nail polish and I painted her nails. And I tried to talk with her more during that process about what she had been going through and you know any concerns that she had. So that was one time where I thought this is very strange. And I actually think I, I considered like, should I ask somebody if this is okay? And then I decided just not to. Just to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I was just gonna I was just gonna do it and seek forgiveness if maybe it was inappropriate. Um yeah, so that's that's one time I can think of. Yeah. It's interesting how sometimes those little gestures of humanity or normalness really have a kind of outsized impact on patients, particularly when they're in really tough times, going through hard stuff. Yeah. So one of the things we're going to talk about today with our friend Laura Gindry Grimes is times when you have these kind of professional boundaries when, you know, maybe it's the role of somebody else to do part of the work. And yet if they're unwilling or unable, do you sometimes take it on for yourself, even against their objections? You know, the role of the clinical ethicist is somewhat defined, but I'm not sure that it the parameters are always so clear. And so there might be times when you make a judgment call about, is this in my scope of responsibility or not? Yeah, it's constantly a question of, okay, am I the, not only do I have the responsibility to do this, but am I the best person to be doing whatever it is that you think may be above and beyond, so. So buckle in for another bittersweet case that haunts us. Welcome to Bioethics for the People, where we discuss bioethics and complex questions in medicine, health, and society. I'm joined by my co-host, as always, the birther of babies, the birther of books, the Baylor bear, the bell of bioethics, Dr. Devin Stahl. And I am joined by my co-host, clinical ethicist extraordinaire, sometimes lawyer and all-around boss at Western Michigan, Tyler Gipp. Right. Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People. Today, we're pleased to be joined by Laura Gindry Grimes, an associate staff bioethicist at the Cleveland Clinic and a clinical assistant professor of medicine at the Lerner College of Medicine of Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. Welcome, Laura. Hi, thank you so much for having me. All right, Laura, so this season is all about tough cases. So you've brought a case to us. We actually don't know what the case is, but we're going to have you maybe introduce 
kind of how did this case come to you? Um, we'll just start there. So it came to me early in my career, and we were consulted by social workers who were involved in the case uh, within the first day that the patient had been admitted to the hospital. So I don't get a lot of cases from social workers necessarily. They typically, in my experience, come from nurses and physicians. Is that true of you? Yeah, everywhere I've worked, most of our consults tend to come from physicians and nurses. But uh, this hospital, we had particularly good relationships with social workers. We had cultivated over many years. Uh, we provided CEs for them every year and made a big point about how clinical ethics and social work, that these are mm -hmm. naturally allied fields. All That's right. interesting. I get a ton of cases from social workers, oh, really? but I don't think they're necessarily gener like prompted by social work type concerns, but they're the folks who are the first ones to, to place the consult. So we, we work really closely with a lot of social workers at a lot of different units. Yeah, I end up talking with social workers in almost every case I'm a part of. Uh, but as far as who the requester is, I, I think there might be some hesitance from some social workers at some institutions that, you know, they think that the medical team, like the physician or the APRN should really be the one to put in the consult. Uh, it's pretty normal for me to like get in an elevator with the social worker and they say, oh, we had a great case for you last week. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, empowering social workers to be clinical ethics requesters is really important. All right. So it's coming from social work. What's what's the case? Sure. So uh, I'm going to call her Ms. S. I have de-identified uh, this case for this discussion. So this is a 65-year-old woman with a history of congestive heart failure and chronic hypotension. Uh, she also had diabetes. And she was admitted to the hospital with heart palpitations and pain and shortness of breath. When her husband went out of the room, she divulged to social work that uh, her husband had turned off her milrinone pump in her sleep. So the milrinone is an inotrope that helps with heart function. It is an important part of her uh, heart health management. And she said that her husband had turned it off in her sleep, that she had caught him uh, doing it when she came to, and uh, that is why she was in the hospital. And she also divulged that she had had 40 years of emotional abuse from him and that he was medically neglectful and liked seeing her ill. Oh goodness, that's very alarming. So she, so she had uh, some sort of like constant infusion medication. I'm just trying to paint a picture for folks who maybe not be familiar with this medication. So she's got heart trouble, and she is on a constant pump of this medication. Uh, basically, yeah, it, it helps her uh, receive the doses that she needs. So it might not be constant uh, in the sense of um, a continual. Um, large dose stream or anything like that. But yeah, the idea is to help her receive the medication she uh, needs throughout the day because her heart failure was uh, getting pretty advanced. Gotcha. So yeah, so Laura, my first thought would be, I would say, I'm so sorry to hear that. Do we need to assign somebody to make decisions for you if you're not able to make them yourself who is not your husband? Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you went there. That ended up being part of the discussion in about the second week. <laughs> uh, that wasn't even day one sort of conversation. Um, but yes, I, I mean, that 
ended up being a big part of what uh, ethics, social work, and palliative medicine worked together on is to make sure that she had an opportunity to appoint someone as her healthcare power of attorney who was not her husband. And part of that process was letting her know, I mean, it's unusual, but we can keep this power of attorney paperwork confidential from the husband as well. Oh, yeah, I've never thought of that, but that that makes sense. And also, do we need to ban him from the hospital? Do we need, like, what do we, how do, I, I don't know that I want him anywhere near her if this is, if this claim, you know, I, I mean, I believe her unless you give me reason to not believe her, but if she sounds like a reasonable person who's disclosing this, I, I want to keep him away from her altogether. Yeah, so I I agree with that concern. Uh, one of the reasons I'll say that this case affected me as strongly as it did is because um, for years I volunteered with a domestic violence and sexual violence shelter. And, you know, as a clinical ethicist, you learn those cases that um, really kind of jab you in the gut, so to speak. Uh, and this is one of those patients where I was, I was immediately drawn to try to help with the, um, with her concerns about domestic violence. And part of what was concerning, part of what was concerning for me in this situation is that a number of members of her team actually did not believe her reports. Uh, and so she was deemed to have decision-making capacity for the medical decisions at hand. She was able to talk through uh, the inotrope. She was able to talk about her uh, heart health at a decent enough level. Um, however, she did have some apparent cognitive deficits. It was unclear uh, what the source of those deficits were or even how significant they were. Uh, she was not given sort of tests like the mini mental to try to see um, where she was cognitively. But the concerns about her cognitive deficits were really based on her presentation where she would repeatedly like look down. She wouldn't look anyone in the eye. Uh, she had slurred speech a little bit and she regularly seemed distracted, like she was losing the threads of conversation. And so they had to repeat information to her multiple times. And because of this, in addition to the fact that the husband was very smiley, was uh, shaking hands of everyone, was thanking everyone for taking good care of his wife, who was the love of his life, uh, he was a gregarious guy. And so his presentation and her presentation led folks to doubt her reports. Um, and so there was some speculation that she might have dementia or some kind of undiagnosed psychiatric issue, but there was a running theme and actually took up a number of meetings over two weeks with multiple members of our healthcare team of people wanting to doubt, you know, to express their doubts about her reports of what was going on with him. Uh, she's also a Black woman, and an older Black woman, and so I also had concerns about implicit bias in that regard. Isn't that so classic, though? I, I just from what I know about domestic abuse, it's very common that the perpetrator of that abuse is able to get away with it, with it for so long because they are so gregarious and sociable and able to hide kind of that other side of their personality. And of course, an abuse victim often is withdrawn and has a hard time communicating. That just seems so um, that seems to epitomize to me kind of how a lot of those relationships work. And so I'm surprised that healthcare workers wouldn't have thought the same thing. 
Yeah, I, this was a big part of our meetings, uh, actually. I mean, it, in a way, given everything going on with this case, it was um, odd to me at the time that this was so much of our discussion is whether to believe her reports about her husband. And I made I made these points that my experience working at the shelter that uh, this these are common presentations that the lack of confidence when speaking, the inability to look someone in the eye, um, the overall just kind of like um, distraction or difficulty with prolonged conversations, a lot of that is the result of years of abuse. And um, it it was a very difficult part of this consult for sure. Okay, so what are your first, what are the first moves then in this case? So the first thing, well, one of the first things that we did is uh, we had a multidisciplinary team meeting with Ms. S and her husband was still in the room uh, at the time. Uh, she had been asked if she wanted him to be out of the room, but he was in the room when that was asked and she said no. Uh, and so uh, he stayed in the room and the uh, heart failure team talked with her about how they could put her on a second inotrope, another medication to help with her heart. But really her con condition was gonna be considered terminal at this point if she did not receive a left ventricular assist device or an LVAD. And so the next step was for her case to go to an LVAD eligibility committee. Uh, and we actually had ethics presence at this committee, uh, which, you know, if, if I can just say, if you're a clinical ethicist listening to this and your institution has a bad committee, this is a great place to have an ethicist. But so Laura, I'm, yeah, I'm struck kind of right off the bat that if we believe your patient, um, I don't trust her husband to take good care of her um, as would be necessary if she were to receive this LVAD. So if we trust her and believe her, that actually might decrease her chances of being eligible for an LVAD that she desperately needs to survive. And now I'm scared for her. So that's exactly what ended up happening. The LVAD committee ended up uh, disqualifying her for this device because she had inadequate caregiver support based on her reports of her husband. Ugh. And so the, that's on the basis of so, uh, psychosocial criteria. And her cardiologist, uh, who is a doctor I, I really liked, he and I bonded over the course of this case. Uh, he was really attached to Ms. S as well, uh, had been caring for her for years and had not known that there was this history with her husband, but also did not doubt what she was saying. Uh, something I'll never forget is he said to me, you know, Miss S is being double victimized. She's being victimized at home. And then she comes to a hospital and she was asking for the bad when she learned that her condition was otherwise going to be terminal, that she was going to have basically her life was going to end um, sooner than she wanted and then it necessarily needed to because she had been denied this advanced therapy Ugh, that just seems so unjust i mean my like that's such a gut punch because right exactly double victimized she because she's the victim of abuse she also doesn't qualify for medical treatment that will save her life that just seems completely unfair it also seems like, like you said, another layer of unfairness on injustice to her 
because had she just continued to keep quiet about the abuse, then she may have been in line for this life prolonging therapy. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Uh, I, I think that there would have been uh, fewer concerns about giving her the LVAD if she had not mentioned the situation with her husband. On the same token, though, the concern from the committee uh, has some merit to it, which is that if he is going to be turning off the millerinone pump at night, he could just as easily turn the battery off or remove the battery from her LVAD. I mean, an LVAD makes a patient more reliant on caregiving support in a lot of ways. Uh, it does require the cooperation of people in the home to help keep the patient safe. And if he was unable and unwilling to do that, and moreover, was actually going to make her un more unsafe, that's a big concern. He would need to be willing to take her to the hospital. If she started to feel well, he would need to notice if uh, you know she was starting to develop an infection. You know, there, there are lots of different parts to it. And so in a way, we'd be making her more medically vulnerable in a situation where she was socially vulnerable. You know, it's not an easy case. It, it really is um, a, a tragic case on so many levels. And one of the things that I did uh, as the ethicist too uh, was, I'll just use the word triggered because that is an accurate term for it. Um, you know, I, I was pretty triggered in this case for a few reasons. And uh, one of the things I thought is, okay, if the committee is going to say no, as long as she's in this house, I wonder if I could get her a different house to live in. Uh, I'll, I'll say again, this was early in my career. And so one of the things that I had to struggle with a bit is that line between being a clinical ethicist and being like a social worker or a caseworker. But what I really wanted to do, and I, I talked with Ms. S about it beforehand because I wanted to get her permission, of course, is I asked, you know, would you be open to my trying to find, and I said our trying to find, but she was pretty sick and couldn't participate much in the process. Um, so I asked if I could take the lead in contacting her other family members. She had a number of adult children. She had a sister, and I wanted to see if someone could, you know, provide a home for her. It's a big ask of any family. Uh, we should never, you know, um, minimize what we are asking when we ask family members to take in uh, another person into their home, especially a person who's going to have a number of medical needs. But I was really hopeful. She she had a loving relationship with her children, and uh, the sister was uh, very involved. Uh, and so I I wanted to see if maybe that could be a solution. And the cardiologist said, if you can make that happen, I will take her case back to the LVAD committee. That's interesting because so much of my training in clinical ethics was trying to be clear about the professional boundaries. And, you know, I think people who go into clinical ethics generally have really big hearts and they want to help and they see their skills and their training as a way to improve the lives of patients. Yeah, so do you think that you would have done the same things now uh, as you did earlier in your career? It's a good question. Part of the difficulty for me in this situation is that the people who would have had this role didn't believe her. Ugh. 
So the social workers who would typically be the ones calling family members didn't believe the abuse accusations. Right. And so I had initially gone to them to ask about this, and they said that they did not think that that was a necessary step. And they had concerns that taking that kind of step would potentially do more harm than good. Did the What was the husband's awareness of the concerns at this point? Did he know that there were accusations of domestic abuse and that was the reason that she wasn't moving forward with the VAD? Or was he in the dark about this? So he was in the dark, to my knowledge, at this point. Uh, to my knowledge, he did not learn about these reports at all until she was close to discharge. So he worked a lot. Uh, and so he was not present in the hospital uh, as much. Um, and so that made it easier to respect her wishes that he not learn about these reports. I really do get the professional boundary issue. And I would like to sort of justify what I did by listening to the patient, her giving me permission and wanting to fight for this bad. And it was the only path that any of us could see forward. I do believe this is not a clean case. I think it's a professionally difficult case for a clinical ethicist. And um, I heard it at the time and I've heard it since that there is this question about whether um, I did make a dubious professional call for, you know, and reaching out to family members in this way. Interesting. Yeah, that wasn't really, I, I mean, I, I wasn't trying to criticize. I think it was, it, it's an interesting question for clinical ethicists to think about, but also people who consult clinical ethics to at least have an idea of what the parameters of the the consult service is. But, you know, my 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 gut reaction is always to defer to the people on the ground, defer to the people at the bedside because you have a, a, a better read about it. So, well, and so for for what it's worth, if if this helps with the recording uh, for given that I'll say. This was an unusual step to take to reach out to the family to see if another home could be available. Um, I was really motivated in this case because of the patient's values and her encouragement and desire to fight for this bad. I wanted to honor that to the best of my ability, uh, trying to collaborate with my clinical colleagues as much as possible. But when there were barriers to pursuing what seemed to be the only path available to her, uh, if she were to get this VAT, then I thought it was justified to go ahead and take that step. Yeah, my heart says yes. So what did what happened, Laura? So you started reaching out to family. What did they say? So the first person I talked to was a family member who had been estranged for some years before um, this had happened. And that individual did not believe the patient said, you know, have you met the husband? He's so nice. Hmm. That can't possibly be true. And the patient had also, just to be very clear, had given me permission to disclose to family the reports of abuse. Um, and so I didn't go into nitty gritty detail with them, but I gave the broad brush strokes that I had talked with Miss S about revealing to them. And so this particular family member did not believe it. And the adult children, they uh, were more open to its being true 
but they also were really struggling to figure out a way that they could care for her in their homes because they had small children, they had uh, demanding jobs, they had hectic lifestyles, and they didn't want to put Miss S in a situation where she would have inadequate caregiving support from them either. Mm -hmm. That was um, a real tragic, like extra tragic point in the case for me is realizing that this path that uh, I hoped would be available to her ended up not being a path forward at all. Mm -hmm. And so her case could not go back to the eligibility committee because nothing had materially changed about her case. And so where we were, um, among other things, was this discharge challenge. So she was now on two inotropes and she felt unsafe at home. And so even though the original plan was to send her back home with the two inotropes with her husband and just check up to see how she was doing, but because of these reports that she felt unsafe at home, the team was ultimately convinced that that would not be a suitable discharge plan for her. Uh, I mean, the other challenge too is that nursing homes, right? If you were to think, well, even if she were to receive a bad, could she like go to a nursing home? Mm -hmm. And nursing homes are not able to care for patients with bads, uh, at least not anywhere near where this hospital was. Um, and hospices were also disinclined to take a patient on inotropes. And so we also had this discharge difficulty. She did not want to go home with her husband, which she did clarify explicitly. Uh, she didn't have an option of going home with other family. The nursing home option, uh, you know, could potentially be an option, but she had these uh, two inotropes and, you know, she received a bad, they wouldn't be able to take her. And then hospice would also be a challenge if she wanted to continue her current level of care. It sounds like she wasn't making the decision that she just wanted comfort only care, right? It wasn't that she was pursuing hospice as her primary, uh, her primary goal of treatment. It sounds like that was kind of all that was left to her, right? Exactly. And so that's ultimately what ended up happening, though, is that palliative medicine was brought in and they talked with her about what hospice could look like for her. They had, uh, through lots of diligent efforts, uh, lots of persuasion, they had found a hospice that was willing to take her with the two inotropes, but with an agreed on weaning plan over time. Uh, and so when that was mentioned to her, um, and also after the patient had designated her adult children as her healthcare powers of attorney, the adult children were going to, like, they had committed to being more involved in her life now that they knew what was going on with the uh, husband. And so they committed to uh, visiting her in the hospice. And so the patient ended up agreeing to that plan. So um, I saw her the day before she was about to go to hospice. And I'll never forget how much she had transformed. She was sitting up in bed. She was smiling. Her eyes were sparkling. She was looking everyone in the eye. She was not slurring her speech. She was, um, you know, just speaking with a confidence that we hadn't seen for most of the admission. And part of that is probably due to just the medical care for her that she received was making her feel better. But when I talked with her and I talked with her about how she was feeling about hospice, 
at this point, I had already lost uh, quite a bit of sleep about the situation and was feeling pretty uh, rough about it. And she said that uh, she was just so happy to be going home to a real home. She was really happy to not be going back to her previous situation. And she was happy her adult children were more involved, that her adult children were listening to her. And that's how the case ended. And I, I did ask folks to hear if they have received any updates on her. And she did die in hospice about a month later. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's sad and somewhat happy. Uh, I'm sure you had a lot of mixed emotions about it. Yeah, I think of it as the definition of a bittersweet ethics consult. Yeah. So at what point did was the husband made aware of the concerns about the safety of her her living situation? So I do not know. I do not know. Um, I, I'm not even positive that it was ultimately disclosed to him. I do know that he stopped coming to the hospital and he mm. stopped answering the phone at a particular point. And it was right in the last few days that she was in the hospital ready for discharge. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, earlier in the description of the case, you said, or you related that the patients described a, a pattern of abuse, years of abuse, and that the husband liked her to be ill. So that brings up this question that, um, you know, I first became aware of when I watched The Sixth Sense when I was in middle school. Um, no idea where about, this is going. <laughs> yeah, where is this going, Tyler? <laughs> about uh, this condition that we run into every once in a while, but it's actually way, it happens way more commonly than than I think, uh, than I would have assumed, called Munchausen syndrome. Mm. And specifically Munchausen's by proxy, which is this idea, it's a, it's, a, it's a mental disorder of somebody who derives some sort of social or... Um, community benefit by being the caretaker of somebody who is ill and so they intentionally make the person sick and it's usually a child or somebody who's a who's a dependent in, in some way so did that come up at all in this case so not not as an explicit part of the conversation um and so the the current term for those kind of conditions would be factitious disorders yeah, that, that, I mean, so much of the conversation was just really focused on whether to believe her. And we ended up in this weird limbo space where we believe her enough for her not to get an LVAD, but we don't believe her such that there's this big push for her to just go back home with the husband. Um, it took a lot of work to break out of that discharge pathway. Yeah, that's interesting that that she was being believed in a way that was detrimental, but not being believed in a way that would be beneficial for her. Yeah, it was is definitely a big source of my own distress with this case. Um, you know, where we would have meetings that I thought were going to be focused on like creative problem solving around possible treatment paths that we hadn't talked about yet, or discharge options that didn't involve going home with the husband. And um, instead, we would spend another hour talking about whether to believe her at all. And so that happened a lot over a couple of weeks. It makes me so mad. I'm so mad hearing this case. <laughs> <laughs>
And I, I recognize, right, you're, you all are hearing my side of the case and you're not hearing from all the folks involved. Um, but I, it, it's, it's definitely a case that has haunted me, that has really stuck with me. Um, and one of the things that I thought about for months after she left our hospital is, you know, what, what precedent does this set? And maybe Miss S wasn't the first patient who had been decided, like had her case decided in this way, where you have patients in domestic violence situations who are being maybe systematically excluded from uh, VAD eligibility. You know, how are the psychosocial criteria being interpreted? Are they being interpreted consistently across patients? Is that interpretation fair? And I, I've tried to be charitable with, you know, part of the the reason to be concerned, because I, I I do get the concern there that making her more medically vulnerable in a socially vulnerable situation, especially since nursing home was not an option, is difficult. You know, that that can feel like you're doing harm to the patient that's preventable. And so it's it's this question of, you know, organizationally of how we think about unsafe home environments and how much effort we put into changing those home environments. And, you know, if, if this is, you know, ultimate kind of like unwritten, unspoken decision that patients in domestic violence situations are not gonna get a bad, then how, how do we grapple with that? Um, and I did bring this up to the team a couple of times uh, as for the conclusion of the consult and then about a year later. Um, and I, I wanted to get a read from them to see how they had digested this case, how they had thought about it. The folks I talked to said that they do not think there is a routine exclusion of patients in domestic violence situations. But I said, well, have you seen then cases where you do have a patient in this kind of situation who does get it bad? And they said, no. Um, and so it's it's one of those areas where I wish that there were more data and more discussion about this kind of issue because it's not clean. Uh, it's not straightforward. It's a whole slew of judgments that I think you know, may very well be uh, well-intentioned judgments to do right by the patient, um, but the way this case unfolded was definitely difficult. Yeah, Laura, have you thought about what we should be doing? Have you written a paper on this? Tell me, because I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm concerned that, like, we just can't solve everyone's social situation, but gosh, this is so directly related that I just don't know how you don't try. Like, please tell me you've thought of some strategies that we might be able to use. So I have not written on this. Things I've thought about include, you know, one, having someone like ethics on these VAD eligibility committees so that we can be among those who would bring up this kind of concern. We certainly aren't the only ones on a team who would raise these uh, concerns, who would ask these questions, but to to join those who would. And I do think that there's an ethical obligation to believe patients when they report their home environment to be unsafe, when they say that they 
have been subjected to abuse of any sort or medical neglect, and that the immediate response should be, you know, would you like us to remove his visitation privileges? Um, not that all abusers are male, but just for the sake of this case. Um, you know, would you like us to remove his visitation privileges? Would you like to uh, for us to contact other family to be with you? Does your family know? Would you like us to facilitate that kind of conversation so that we can, you know, get social supports in place for your care? I mean, especially with her, where we knew to talk with her about uh, getting other social supports for her chronic condition, if she does have a chronic condition, or just otherwise, you know, make sure that we have that healthcare power of attorney paperwork filled out. It took almost three weeks for that POA paperwork to be offered to her. And I think that, that was that was a mistake. It should have come much sooner. Uh, it should have come day one, day two, when she first disclosed that she had this concern with her husband. Um, and I found that in a number of cases, right? If someone reports this, one of our first responses should be, well, let's make sure that that individual is not empowered to be her decision maker, especially in some states where they have a strict hierarchy for whom you go to for decision making if the patient loses capacity. It's so important to make sure that we give the patient an opportunity to choose the right person to be their spokesperson. I do think that there should be some data collection, and I don't have detailed ideas of what that data collection should look like. But with these kinds of situations, these really tough situations, I, I think it's the same for patients with a carceral history, uh, patients who have uh, intellectual and psychiatric disabilities, uh, patients who have um, a history of substance use disorder, these patients we know who are uh, vulnerable in lots of ways, who are multiply marginalized inside and outside of clinical settings, if we can collect data to make sure that at least the decision-making is, um, you know, has some oversight, that we have some considerations of fairness while still recognizing that there will be case-by-case -case considerations that are ethically salient, um, then I, I think that that could go a long way. Well, Laura, I thank you so much for bringing this really tough case to us. I'm sorry there wasn't a sort of better result, but of course, then it wouldn't haunt us. And that's the whole theme of the season. So I appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing a case that really struck you and stayed with you. Yeah, thank you. And Devin, if you have ideas for what we should do, <laughs> I really want to know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh, that, it's so tough. Yeah. When I saw your call for haunting cases, this was definitely the first case that came to mind, you know, seeing her face. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. For more information about today's topics, please visit us at bioethicsforthepeople.com. Special thanks to Darian Goldenstahl for the podcast-related artwork, Christopher Wright for composing and recording the music, and Cameron Swayze for audio engineering support. Mm -hmm.